0: I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of November 2023, and uh, we started out the month calling it No Theme November. Uh, however, I think it's probably more appropriate at this point to refer to it as uh, No Time November. Uh, Kyle and I have both had a lot of real-life stuff going on as of late, uh, in case you hadn't noticed, Kyle is not on the recording this time around, uh, so it is just going to be uh, you and I, dear listener, on the mic this time. So, uh, today I'm going to be talking about a movie that, uh, well, kind of two movies, or one and a half movies, I guess, uh, that I have a maybe a slightly higher opinion of than some people do. Um, And the timing of this particular review um, comes as a consequence of me uh, hopping entirely on the hype train for the upcoming uh, Godzilla Minus One film uh, that is coming to U.S. theaters uh, at the end of November in a special advanced screening event, which I am going to be attending on the 29th uh, here in the Seattle area, Um, and I believe is likely to get a wider release uh, in early December. Um so uh, yeah we are going to be talking some Godzilla today. Uh this will not be a super long episode. I actually am recording this on my lunch break uh, <laughs> on a work day. Uh so uh today I'm going to be talking about uh, Godzilla 1984 also known as uh, the return of Godzilla sometimes referred to as such. Although it's kind of funny uh, to to start things off with just the title here. Um this movie is often referred to as the Return of Godzilla, probably just for for ease of use, uh, because uh, officially, as far as I know, it is just Gojira. like it's just Gojira, just like the original 1954 film. Um, but I often see seen it, it talked about as um, Godzilla as the Return of Godzilla, um, which to me has always been kind of goofy. Um, anyway, I. I'm also going to be talking a little bit about uh, Godzilla 1985 um, because, like most Americans, that was actually my introduction to this film. Was the Americanized uh, recut of the film uh, produced by New World Pictures? That is Roger Corman's New World Pictures. They obtained the rights to the 1984 film and, in fact, re-edited and uh, shot additional scenes uh, for that film, which uh, for the 1985 version that is. Um, which I believe actually has a shorter runtime as a result of the re-edit. Um, but yeah, this is, I've, I've said this before, um, in, in other recordings, probably with uh, my buddy Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast, uh, Godzilla 1984, and I am going to be calling it Godzilla 1984 or Gojira 1984 interchangeably. So try to keep up, um, is kind of like the rare example of a movie, at least in my mind, where I don't think there truly exists like a, a preferable cut of it, at least in my eyes. Um, I feel like both versions have their liabilities, and both versions also have their strengths, such that no perfect version of the film, at least in my mind, actually exists. It's kind of a situation where if you were to take the strengths of both the Japanese original and the New World Pictures version, uh, the Godzilla 1985 version, and combine them, I think that would be the best version of the movie, actually. Um, Which is kind of strange, because generally, when we think of these kinds of things, when we think of a a recut, like like using, in air quotes, an Americanized cut of a foreign film, you kind of immediately jump to the conclusion that, oh yeah, that has to be the inferior cut of the film. I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to argue that Godzilla King of the Monsters from 1956 is better than Gojira from 1954. That That is simply not the case. It is an inferior cut of that film. Um, however, in this case, I, I do think that the New World Pictures version of the film actually has a lot of strengths. Um, it, it has a lot of them if I'm being honest. Um, and I'll touch on those as I go forward, but I, I'll, I may as well set the stage for this one because this is a movie that I, I kind of know frontwards and backwards, especially the 1985 version, um, but also the 1984 version. I've seen both versions many, many times. So just to set the stage for kind of where we were at uh, in the overarching history of Godzilla, um, of course, the character originated in 1954 via Toho Studios' Gojira, uh, directed by Inoshiro Honda. Um, he was actually courted, by the way, uh, to direct this, this film, uh, Gojira, from 1984. Uh, he refused, as far as I understand. But anyway, uh, the story of Gojira begins in 54, and then for decades after that, for a good solid two decades and change after that, uh, we were inundated with uh, Gojira and Gojira-adjacent uh, daikaiju films, that is, Japanese giant monster films, uh, many of which had special effects done by Eiji Tsuburaya. Um, and over the course of that two decades and change period of time, uh, the character of Gojira, who, of course, originated as a kind of like villainous animalistic symbol of nuclear terror, um would evolve and change with the times i've always i've always said that like godzilla and james bond are kind of your your ongoing cultural barometers um and like basically they're they're the trend setters and the trend chasers depending on like the overall quality of the film that they're currently starring in godzilla changes with the times uh and what happened with godzilla was that uh he came out swinging with a fury as as this this booming image of of fury and violence and terror and then a few short years after that he's friend to all children uh, they slapped him on a plastic lunchbox and they they sold it they sold him uh so yeah you go into the 60s you go into the 70s uh and godzilla is his his budgets are dropping Like Toho is not putting the same love and care into the films that they were in the earlier days, in the salad days of Godzilla, I guess you'd call it. Um, And by the time you get to through the 60s and 70s, he's he's a superhero. He's a comic book character. His movies have a very bright color palette. Uh, There's often a Kenny character, like a little kid with unlimited military access and short shorts who is like Godzilla's pal or admires him from afar in like over the course of the narrative of the film. Um, And he does goofy shit like slide on his tail and, oh yes, even fly at one point if we're talking about Gojira versus uh, Hedora, uh, the smog monster uh, for us American fans. Uh, And then in 1975, just one year after uh, his 20-year anniversary of being on the silver screen, Mechagodzilla no Gyakushu, Terror of Mechagodzilla in US cinemas, um, aka the second Mechagodzilla film. Uh, That was the last of what they call the Showa era of Godzilla. Uh, He would kind of bow out of cinema for a very long time. Uh, Toho kind of put him to rest. They put him into hibernation, I guess is more accurate. Uh, Because, uh, as I said, the amount of love and care and money um, being put into the films was going down, I believe, Japan had some economic troubles. Uh, I I think that's true about the entire country, perhaps just Toho Studios, but I do know the early 70s were kind of a rough time for Toho. Uh, so I think they just decided the juice wasn't worth the squeeze anymore. Uh, so in 1975, uh, the Godzilla was put into hibernation. Flash forward to 1983-ish. And uh, the story goes, as far as I know, uh, the like kind of executive producer that kinda, like kind of the shepherd uh, for the Godzilla franchise as a whole from the beginning as far as I understand uh, Tomoyuki Tanaka I uh, as far as I understand he was commissioning scripts for a Godzilla revival project and he like he was just looking for an opportunity he was waiting for the winds to change on Godzilla basically he was lo- looking for an opportunity to make another movie he was just waiting for the people like like mainstream culture to give him a signal that it was time to do that Um, and as we all know like especially in 2023 nostalgia comes in these waves Uh, and often it's like a 20 or 30 year rule these days it seems like we operate on like a 20 year rule for like nostalgia waves and whatnot Um, so as far as I understand the story goes uh, Toho was doing anniversary screenings of older Godzilla films domestically, in Japan, in around the early 80s, like 82, 83. And apparently they were doing pretty well. Like, like audiences were actually turning out for them. And producer Tanaka, uh, he actually took that as, you know, hey, that's our signal. Uh, so he put into production a revival of Godzilla, and he had this agenda of wanting to get back to basics. Uh, he wanted to make Godzilla mean and scary again. Uh, and I, I want to say that, like, this is me speaking directly out of my ass, I haven't done any research on the subject, but I want to say that, like, this has been an ongoing thing in, in Japanese culture, like, for a very long time, but just looking at some of the other media that was coming out in in Japanese cinema and Japanese media, like, in the in the late 70s, and especially the 80s, though, it seemed like there was a kind of a concentrated effort on the part of certain production studios to kind of remind people of the troubled times that, that were only a few decades earlier in that country's history. Like for instance, uh, Grave of the Fireflies from the late eighties as a Japanese animated film that is an examination of like from the civilian standpoint of the horrors of world war II. Um, And there's, there's this infamous moment that the film ends with that i guess i won't spoil but it's basically it's almost like a it's like a direct like fourth wall break essentially where it's like hey hey kids who are watching this just just a reminder your your grandparents like everything that happened in this movie your grandparents saw it maybe even your parents so like listen up (laughs) like like pay attention um so i want to say that like maybe maybe Gojira 1984 kind of falls under that umbrella of like, Hey, like we had our fun, but you know, maybe it's, maybe it's been long enough that we need to remind people that like the, the origins of this character come like have depth, have meaning. We just kind of forgot it at some point, but maybe it's, you see this happen with the Godzilla franchise, like once every generation or so. And he has been around that long. I mean, remember he came out in 1954, every every decade decade and a half or so there there is a godzilla movie that kind of drops the hammer and says like hey listen up like like this it does whenever godzilla shows up not every time godzilla shows up is going to be meaningful but today it is so just l- listen up there's there's lessons to be learned from this particular story uh, so anyway uh, the the crafting of the script for this movie actually has a lot of I don't know if you'd call it intrigue but there is kind of a funny story behind it cuz there's um you wouldn't know this unless you're like a hardcore fan of the property like obviously I am um but there's a character um in the like the outside of the, the larger Godzilla canon uh, by the name of Bagan like B A G A N Bagan um and he's become kind of this this uh, running joke or like a meme um, because he has been present in so many aborted Godzilla scripts, but has never appeared in an actual Godzilla film. But he's this—it's—it's it's like I forget where the origins of this phrase come from. But it's like we—we need to make Bogun happen. How can we make Bogun happen? He's—he's <laughs> he's like Poochie or some shit. The <laughs> Bogun had to go back to his home planet. He died along the way. But yeah, this character, this monster, which has a really cool design, by the way, you can look it up um has never been in a godzilla film but apparently this is his first appearance in a godzilla script was like an early draft uh, an early discarded draft of this film there are no other monsters in this film with the exception of uh shokiros uh, the uh, giant radioactive sea louse uh, that shows up in the early portions of the film more on that later um But yeah, uh, originally one of the earlier scripts of the film involved uh, Godzilla fighting like a chimera monster uh, in the form of Bagan who would take on many, many forms uh, and Godzilla would kick his ass and then turn all mean and nasty towards the country of Japan as he is wont to do. Uh, I want to say that maybe that idea um, got pushed aside. It got put into a drawer and then they opened that drawer in 1995 and said, hey, we're doing... Godzilla versus Destoroyah. maybe we should have Destroya uh, take on many forms kind of similar to this Bagan thing that we keep trying to make happen but never do so uh, you could argue that maybe that's what happened they took the concept and just put a new name put a new name to it and altered the d- design quite heavily I might add um, fun fact um, there is a Super Nintendo game uh, called super Godzilla super super Gojira uh, which plays very very awkwardly especially by the time you get to Mechagodzilla which is only the second level um, that actually features Bagum uh, as I said never been in a film but he has been featured in a Toho video game uh, so he is the final boss of that game uh, which I've beaten a few times uh, and he looks great in it his music his his a, a music that accompanies him is pretty cool Um But yeah, that's the story of Boggan. To continue the story of the scripting, I guess, um, apparently, and I don't know a whole lot about this, uh, I do remember reading about this, that uh, director Steve Miner, uh, who I only know as a director of a couple of Friday the 13th movies, I want to say it was like two and three or something. Anyway, Steve Miner, Steve Steve Perry, Steve Perry, uh, Steve Miner, Um, apparently he had a Godzilla passion project, uh, that he was trying to get off the ground for a long time. And, uh, somehow, some way he was in a position to like option the rights, uh, the American rights to the character of Godzilla. So they actually were doing like pre-production on this thing. Like I've seen concept art of it, uh, with the director, like in, in the shot too. Like, like clearly he was, he was laying hands on whatever pre-production work was being done, um, it was supposed to be called like Godzilla 3D or something like that. Um, and oddly enough, uh, that film obviously was never made, um, because I think Toho lawyers maybe, no, I, I don't think lawyers got involved, but probably the window closed if I had to guess was that I know it was like a limited option situation and he couldn't get a producer. Like he couldn't get a studio to back him. Um, and as such, the project just ended up, it was a whizzle, it was a wazzle, it was very dished. Um But um, if you if you look into it a little bit, apparently some remnants uh, from that Godzilla 3D script, that Steve Miner's supposed to be headlined film that never was made, um, there's some like odd little details in there that actually seem to have found their way into this film. So I don't know if anybody contacted anyone's legal team over that uh, especially considering the film was never made but yeah uh, apparently some of the political intrigue um, and the uh, the cadmium missiles uh, utilized by the super x uh, attack plane um, in the finished film in the actual japanese finished film um, are thing like tidbits that were present in in that american script that was again never shot Uh, so very very fascinating um, but yeah, uh, this would be Godzilla's return to cinemas after a nine-year, uh, nine-year period of rest, um, and as such, Toho actually put a lot of effort and resources into it, um, and as a result, it is a very, very handsome film. Uh, it has a scale and like an epic quality to it that no Godzilla film prior to this had ever attempted, um, and. St- it feels very contemporary, um, in sight and sound. Uh, in a lot of ways, structurally, like it makes me think of like n- late '70s American um, natural disaster films, like The Towering Inferno comes to mind, where it has. I, I'd, I'd hesitate to call it like a procedural quality to it. But it has. There's a certain kind of pacing and a certain selection of characters that you find commonly in in like an American like earthquake or airport or again towering inferno type movie that feel like archetypes that were in the minds of the people making this film. Um, but yeah, as I said, the film actually features no other uh, enemy monster. Uh, this is Godzilla doing a solo appearance. Something that he. Had not done, as far as I know, since 1954. Um, Every other Godzilla film that comes to mind is uh, him versus something or other, or an ensemble situation, if we're talking about, like, say, destroy all monsters. Um, And as a result, uh, he gets all the spotlight when it comes to the majority of the special effects work. Uh, And the special effects in this film are very, very good, for the most part, um, which is actually kind of the subject of um, one of those examples where the 1985 cut, the New World Pictures cut of the movie has some advantages over the 1984 cut because there are a lot of techniques, there's a lot of technologies attempted in this film, but as a result of kind of the pioneering um, that went on during the special effects crafting process for the, the original Japanese cut of the film, there are certain elements that work better than others, and what I'm referring to there is—I um, mentioned this earlier, uh, so I'll touch on it now. Uh, Shokiras, the uh, radioactive sea louse. So, in the early in the early scenes of this movie, there's a fishing boat, the Yahatamaru, um, that that is—it falls under attack by Godzilla. It all happens off-screen, um, but the aftermath of that is that. Uh, apparently sea lice, like those little white popping things that you see on the beach sometimes, apparently they were hitching a ride on Godzilla, and because of his intense radiation, they grew large and carnivorous, Um, and they fell, the story goes, and again, this is all just implied, the story goes they fell off of his body onto the ship and attacked the crew members and, like, drained them of body fluids and stuff, and we do get some nifty, like, I don't know some grisly imagery in the form of like desiccated corpses and stuff. Um, in the aftermath of the attack, we don't actually see anyone get killed on screen. Um, but the actual like rubber puppet monster of the giant sea louse just doesn't work. <laughs> like like it looks cheap, it looks crummy, it looks chintzy. Um, and in they retain its presence in the American cut of the film. It is in the film. But the way that they cut that sequence is much more hurried. Um, not not to the point of being disorienting, but they selectively omit certain shots, i.e., the ones that didn't look so hot, uh, in order to sell the effect to the to the greatest extent. Um, and as a result, the the Japanese cut of, of that sequence feels kind of clunky. It's lacking in drama and and weight um and yeah the the effect just looks kind of shit like it it look it looks like somebody throwing a rubber rock at somebody and clearly it doesn't it isn't as heavy or as powerful as the actor um by the way the actor's name is ken tanaka Uh, he doesn't have a lot of credits on imdb interesting um he uh clearly he's like trying to make it seem like a big menacing powerful creature but like you can tell it weighs like Two pounds or something. Uh, it, it's just a lousy sequence, <laughs> lousy. Um, and I think the way the 1985 cut of the film handles it is the superior cut, if you ask me. And if I'm being honest, really, the the differences between the two cuts of the films are are, are largely why I'm talking about today. Um, I I easily could do a front to back talk about either version of Godzilla or Godzilla 1984 or 1985 for that matter. Um, But like I said, this is no time November, um, so I'm actually actively trying to keep this kind of quick. As I said, I actually started this recording on my lunch break. Actually, I'm resuming it uh, as of a few seconds ago. Uh, So this will be the first time, I think, maybe ever, I've had to record a podcast in two different sittings. Feels weird, man. Um, So yeah, uh, just to go over like some of the... I I guess like I'm not going to go over an exhaustive detail like all the differences between the two films. Um, you can certainly look that up on like movie censorship.com or whatever, if you feel like it. Um, but I, I think what I'd like to key in on are just like th- things that I think maybe both versions could, could borrow from each other to, to make for that, that mythological perfect cut of the film that, as I said, doesn't exist. But, um, So I just went over uh, the sea louse sequence. Um, As I said, in the 1985 version of the film, that sequence is cut down. Um, In addition to that, um, there's also an entire um, effects prop, essentially, um, that is removed from the 1985 cut of the film. Uh, If I understand correctly, like under the uh, advisement of Roger Corman, where it's like, that would make the film look cheap, we don't want new world pictures films uh, to look cheap. (laughs) Um, So what I'm referring to here is um, they actually constructed like a, a two scale um, giant rubberized Godzilla foot uh, for the 1984 cut of the film um, that was used to like, for, like, in-camera shots where they would have this giant prop come crashing down next to cast members or crush cars or things of that nature to, to, to make Godzilla kind of feel like he has a more immediate presence um, next to the actors or what have you. Um, if I'm being totally honest, I love the ambition there. Uh, very reminiscent of Dino De Laurentiis' uh, King Kong from, what was it, 1976? Uh, 70s Kong. Uh, The the one with the Rick Baker gorilla suit um, that looks really, really good when it's Rick Baker run around in the gorilla suit, but looks really, really bad when it's a 50 foot robotic gorilla that they advertised very heavily uh, in the marketing of the film. Um, But whenever you see it on camera, uh, it's only for a few seconds and it looks like shit. It does look like shit. Um, And that's kind of a similar type of ambition that we're seeing here with the the giant rubberized Godzilla foot is it's only in a couple of shots, honestly, of the Japanese version of the film, Um, but it it moves incredibly slowly. And more importantly, though, the uh, the tip of his toenails, like his toenail claws and the I guess you'd call it the sole of his foot, the underside of his foot are like 100 percent just like. Flat, and it looks hideously unnatural. Like it, it looks like a wood-carved figure or something. Um, and it moves very, very slowly. It has no sense of danger to it. Whenever it's on screen with the characters, it's, it's, it just doesn't work. Like I, I'm glad it's not in the 1985 version of the movie because it, it looks like shit. Um, so that's like that's like a, a subtraction that I felt actually um benefit that cut of the film because as I said it's only in a couple of shots of the 84 version anyway um, and nobody nobody misses it um, or should for that I guess um, but those are subtractions and something that I've kind of been dancing around um, as I've been sucking 1985's dick here um, are the additions um, the the much uh, the much, like I don't know how much people hate these or how much, like, I don't know what the general consensus is when it comes to regarding uh, the American additions to to Godzilla 1985. But uh, myself, honestly, I'm kind of split. Because if I'm being totally honest, um, Raymond Burr, uh, who was uh, the star of Godzilla King of the Monsters, uh, Perry Mason himself, um, he was brought in uh, to reprise his Steve Martin role Uh, Yes, the character's name is Steve Martin. He's a reporter, he's a journalist. Um, He was brought back uh, by New World Pictures to film scenes uh, for Godzilla 1985. Um, And all of his scenes, basically, with the exception of him uh, being recruited by a government agency... All of his scenes take place in like a a Pentagon, like war room kind of situation with a whole bunch of military personnel surrounding him. And very frequently the movie will cut back to him. Um, And it's actually like an incredible tool uh, for the people who were re-editing the 1985 version of the movie. Because when I think about it from an editor's standpoint, it's like ah, if if ever we need to make additions or subtractions that affect the timing of the movie or like music cues and such, we have this new footage that we can just cut to on the literally the other side of the globe in the narrative of the film because he is American and the events of the film take place in Japan. We can literally just cut to Raymond Burr and add whatever fluff dialogue we need to for timing purposes. Uh, so it's a huge boon uh, to whoever had to re-edit the film. And in fact, I should probably look that up because actually the edit, the, just the general timing of the edit of Godzilla 1985 is something that I, I think I hold in higher regard in some ways than the 1984 version. Um, I'm looking for an editor. Uh, Michael Spence is listed as an American, obviously, uh, by the name. Uh, editor that worked on the film, as well as Christopher Young, apparently supplied uh, additional music uh, for the 1985 cut. Now, if you don't know who that is, um, look him up. He has done some good work in Hollywood. Uh, famously uh, replaced, essentially um, Danny Elfman on Spider-Man Three. Um, he he was doing like in between work, like he was. He was working under Danny Elfman on the Spider-Man films. But something happened where Danny Elfman and Sam Raimi just hated each other or some shit. Like, like they got into it real serious or something. Um, and as a result, Christopher Young, as far as I recall, um, actually scored Spider-Man 3. Like, Danny Elfman was just like, fuck this. Like, you can keep the themes that I made for that spider fella and that goblin fella. But the rest of that shit makes someone else do it. Um, so, holy shit. Christopher Young did some in between work. That's cool. Oh uh, yeah, Michael Spence apparently uh, handled the Ed for uh, nineteen eighty five. Um, but I'll I'll get back to that. I'm trying to get myself back on track here. So the Steve Martin scenes. Um, everybody sucks. Uh, like all the like pretty much all the acting performances from the American actors are pretty uniformly not great. Um, the the young redhead guy that uh, is saddled with the unfortunate responsibility of having to serve as a walking, talking Dr. Pepper ad, he's mostly obnoxious. Uh, the old fella, he's all right. Um, the Robert Stack-looking guy, he's all right. But Raymond Burr is really the star of the show her, here. And I know sometimes people make fun of his performance or probably more accurately his presence in the film. Like just why is he here? Like, why is this, why is this, excuse me, fat white guy here telling me about what's going on in Japan right now? Why is he an expert on Godzilla? And yeah, I'll admit a lot of his dialogue is cringeworthy because a lot of it deals with like Orientalism and like faux mysticism and stuff. He has some sort of weird psychic connection with the monster. I don't know. It's not explained (laughs) nor, nor is that accurate either. I'm exaggerating. Um, But if I'm being honest, he commits to it. Um, And in fact, I was doing a little bit of research earlier today, and uh, apparently that is true. Like, not only did he really commit to the material and try to make the best of it that he could, apparently, like, publicly, like, this man, Raymond Burr, was, was actually kind of stepping up for the movie. Like, it was thought of as kind of a joke, like like they had acquired the rights to distribute the film and re-edit the film and stuff outside of Japanese territories for not that much money as as I recall. And they were kind of planning to make it into a bit of a farce um, because Godzilla kind of was that in the in the popular consciousness in in like not only here, but in Japan also. remember, like he he's coming off of twenty years of being a fucking hero to all children. And oh yeah. A Hanna-Barbera cartoon, and oh yeah, a Marvel Comics character. (laughs) He was he was kind of a joke. Uh, So this return to like his more serious portrayal was was a very big leap. Uh, And as such, New World Pictures, as far as I understand, was not really preparing to to treat it like a serious film. They're kind of going to lampoon the the movie that they purchased, basically. But apparently Raymond Burr, like, championed it. He was like, man, that movie was a really big deal in my career. It continues to be. Um, And, you know, it's not every day you you get to be involved in something that gets this damn big. So I think we owe it some respect, right? So apparently, like, I applaud the man. Apparently he really stepped up for the big G. Um, And, big bonus, uh, the... uh, heartfelt little speech he gives uh, over the ending sequence of the film I I just learned this Uh, apparently he wrote it himself kind of makes me think of uh, it Liam Neeson at the end of the Grey as far as I recall uh, I I think I read somewhere that he wrote the poem uh, that live and die on this day poem or something himself Um, so yeah like I said a lot of the scenes with Raymond Burr the material is shit a lot of the actors outside of Raymond Burr are not so great, but he himself I kind of appreciate. So that's that's a weird backhanded compliment to to the American recut. But I I thought he I thought he really showed up, which is not something I guess you could say for everybody involved. And oh yeah, I did mention the Dr Pepper uh, product placement in the film. Uh, Dr Pepper did uh, obviously front some of the bill for the production of the film. Um, and you better believe the Pentagon has a fucking Dr. Pepper machine in its main hallway. And yes, as I said, that redheaded gentleman, uh, most certainly holds up that can with the logo facing outward, uh, as he takes a sip. Um, so that's, that's kind of cringeworthy. Um, other additions, uh, come in the form of like, and I'm not going to go over everything as I said, but I'm just like I'm doing a stream of consciousness here thing. Try to try to keep up. Uh, <laughs> good luck with that. Um, the big one that comes to mind is a uh, now, dear listeners. Uh, there's a good chance that you're maybe a little on the younger side. Hopefully, you are. Like it'd be nice to have a diverse listenership. But um, in the mid '80s, there was a little thing called the Cold War, and during that time um, the United States and at the time USSR um, Russia and other Soviet states basically um, they didn't like each other they had beef with each other and as such uh, the Soviet Union was the (laughs) <laughs> basically the heel uh in in every story possible they were shoehorned in as being responsible for all the bad things that ever happened in the 80s <laughs> like they, life would find a way in american cinema in the 1980s and this film is no exception what's fascinating about that is that so i didn't even bother to explain the plot of this movie i understand that but We have a kind of an inciting incident in this movie where it turns into not only a monster movie, but also kind of like a international political flashpoint kind of movie. So we have a situation where in Japanese waters, Godzilla attacks and destroys a Soviet uh, nuclear submarine. Uh, And as a result of him attacking Soviet military hardware, uh, that whole nation... It takes umbrage with the big G um but because the the battleground for which any you know where any munitions will be tossed happens to be the Japanese territory um we have a whole sequence where because the Russians are talking about using weapons the Americans who are Japanese like Japan's allies to this day um They they all assemble and they have a they have an audience with uh, the Japanese Prime Minister, uh, who by the way is played by uh, Keiju Kobayashi, uh, who is a Toho stalwart. As far as I understand, he shows the fuck up for this movie. Uh, If ever there was a acting uh, VIP or MVP, excuse me, I'm sorry um acting mvp for this movie it's Keiju Kobayashi as the prime minister as the pm uh he he has some cool face acting shit he does here where he he's he looks good smoking on camera i know Kyle always appreciates smoking in films he he looks good smoking a cigarette and man he looks good when he's sad like he has that that masculine sadness though where it's like he's he's crying but he's 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 got the spirit he's got still got that That rugged toughness in him he's he's like ideal image of like 1980's politician basically like Japanese politician Uh, he's great in this but anyway we have this whole sequence where uh, a representative of the USSR and the United States both hold this meeting with the PM and they're both telling him yo uh, Godzilla's a problem Um, and we really would like the chance to toss some nukes at him and the PM, like, in the 1984 cut of the film, says nothing. And he goes and he, he holds court with his, uh, with his advisors. And then he comes back to them. In the 1985 cut, they, they combine those two sequences. And it makes for a more expedient cut of the film. I'm not sure that sequence, which one does it better. Um, but it is fascinating that the way the original Japanese version of the film portrays this is the PM hears what they have to say and goes and holds a committee and then responds to them like a day later or something. Um, very fascinating. What's What's interesting about that is that um, I'm, I'm trying to circle back and finish my thought that I started 10 minutes ago. I'm sorry. Um, the portrayal of, of Soviet Russia uh, in both versions of the film uh, differ somewhat, um, <laughs> somewhat. Uh, so in the 1984 cut of the film, both both nations outside of Japan are presented as being like two, two superpowers, exactly what they are, like uh, two superpowers with Japan caught in the middle, like geographically or otherwise. Um, whereas in the 1985 cut, it's no surprise that uh, the USSR is made to look like the bad guys. Like they're not, an, they're not an equal superpower. It's like no, they are. They're the black hat supervillains here, and the U.S. and Japan are on the side of good. Um, and the way this manifests in in the cuts of the film is in the 1984 version, it's very straight down the middle. Um, like Rus- the Russians are not made to look any worse than the Americans. Um, maybe a little bit more aggressive in that. The representative speaking to him is a little agitated because Russian lives were lost, whereas on the American side, no but no, no, Americans died. There was no sub that got blown up on their end. So it makes sense that he's a little bit more fiery. Um, but in the 1985 of the film, they omit uh, one line of dialogue from that meeting sequence where the Russian fellow makes a point and the American representative points at him and he says, he's right. in regards to wanting to bomb Godzilla. So in the the 1985 cut of the film, they're like, no way. We we can't have one of our boys agreeing with them. Like, everything that guy just said is bullshit. (laughs) Um, So they cut that one line out of there, and I thought that was hilarious. Um, What's more, though, um, there's a late crisis in the film wherein uh, the Russians launch a nuclear missile at Japan and the portrayal of that is handled radically differently in both cuts of the film so in the 1984 cut the original version the Japanese version it's an accident there is a Russian freighter like moored in in Tokyo Bay uh, that has some sort of launch control system in it that there's actually a fella who it's his job to monitor it, and he is instructed to shut down, like like basically shut down the possibility of it launching missiles. <laughs> there's an accident, Godzilla shows up, the, the freighter gets damaged, somehow some, the controls go haywire, and that same fella goes to shut down the accidental launch of a missile. He dies in the effort to try to stop it. In Godzilla 1985, the American cut of the film... <laughs> They show all the same footage of that guy trying to make his way through the ship, try to try to get into the room with the missile control system, and they change the English subtitles of, this. I presume, the same Russian dialogue to read instead of, in the Japanese version, it reads, like, I have to stop it. In the American version, they change the English subtitles to read, I have to fire it. I must fire the missile. <laughs> and then, to make an ugly situation even uglier. Uh, this gentleman, who is gravely injured, he gets into the missile miss- missile control room, In the Japanese version, uh, a control panel blows up and he dies, so he doesn't get to the switch. He doesn't get to press the button to turn it off. In the American version, I uh, we f- we filmed an additional shot, complete with a James Cameron Alien style, like bathed in red lighting. We filmed an additional shot of a presumably caucasian man uh his hand reaching towards a big red button and pressing it complete with like ominous orchestra sting like a doom and then the hand goes limp and he like falls down dead so his last act was to launch the missile in the 1985 version uh, <laughs> thereby make thereby thereby solidifying the russians as untrustworthy and hyper aggressive um which Hey, maybe that's true, <laughs> but but uh, it's it's kind of hilarious. Like the I don't know the the efforts to like politicize the film uh, to to make the Russians look bad, very 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 deliberately. Um, but yeah, in the nineteen eighty four cut, it it's kind of straight down the middle, where like the whole thing is that Japan is at the mercy of both of these superpowers. They are they are fearful of both of them, even though the Americans are. Technically, their allies, and that whole sequence that they cut, that the the, the uh, intervening sequence between the two meetings that the PM has, um, it is it is cut from the 1985 version, and that is a damn shame. Because for timing purposes, I get it, because it is kind of a long and very very talky scene. Um, but it's some of the most interesting stuff in the movie, <laughs> is these these old men in suits in a back room having a conversation about the the political ramifications of, of what is being asked of them right now and they very candidly throw it out there that's like you know i'm pretty sure that both of these countries both america and the ussr i'm pretty sure both of them are just itching to toss a new age tactical nuclear weapon into somebody's backyard and just to just to see if it works because remember japan is still the only country to ever actually been attacked with a nuclear weapon Um, and it's antiquated technology by today's standards and today we have things that they call tactical nuclear weapons that are supposed to be much smaller and quote tactical in their application so the idea is the the japanese are very very fearful of allowing their their homeland to be used as basically a test kitchen Like, like they don't want to be a lab experiment for other greater military powers newest toys basically um and yeah the pm goes back to them and uh, this is in the 1985 cut uh, he has this really cool series of lines where he basically spells out the japanese nuclear policy and says fuck off go home take your ball and take your ball and go home um and, and both representatives are not happy about it, but it's a really cool sequence um for some reason i felt the need to go into it in detail but um i think those are the only additions that come to mind um in the 1985 cut but on the whole the the main thing to take away from the 85 cut of the film is that i do think it has a it has a faster pace to it obviously they did cut down the runtime as far as i know um but on top of that the the timing of some of the cuts like obviously material has been excised, like they've made subtractions, um, but just like moment to moment, beat to beat, it. F- if you ask me, there's certain parts of it that just flow better. Like there's certain shots that are trimmed ever so slightly. And, and on top of that, it's a weird thing to say about a, a recut of, of a movie that was released very successfully, as far as I know, theatrically, but the, the way that the, the audio-visual edit is handled. It I feel like it harmonizes better with the soundtrack for the film because um, a lot of the 1984 cut of the film are weirdly flat. <laughs> like, a lot of scenes are are weirdly silent, and it does give it, like, a haunting atmosphere at times, but if I'm being totally honest, sometimes it feels kind of lifeless. Like, it, it feels like some of the the music cues that are... Yes, very, very blunt and manipulate like emotionally manipulative. In Godzilla, nineteen eighty-five, give it, give it more spirit, give it more life. Make, make minor things feel more impactful. Like it is dumb in in that it's like the going the very, very obvious route of using audio cues and such to guide the viewer towards how they should be feeling in this moment. But I. I'd, I'd be lying if I said it wasn't just more engaging and more effective. Engaging is is the main thing because I'm not going to lie certain parts of the original cut of the film are weirdly flat where it's just like why is there no sound? Like why is there no music here? Traditionally these movies ha- are unbearably noisy if I'm being honest. Um but on the subject of the soundtrack, um I would be remiss if I didn't point that out. Um score is composed by reijiro koroku uh who i only know from one other project again speaking directly out of my ass i am I, not researching on the fly um with the exception of looking up an actor's name of uh, keiju kobayashi salute good actor um koroku is i know him from uh the Giver. uh he did the um Kyoshiro uh, Kusakabe, Bio Booster Armor Guyver, uh, OVA series from the mid '90s. Uh, if you're not familiar with Guyver, um, I promise you, uh, Kyle might not be happy about this, but I promise you. Uh, oh, maybe I could get Brad. Brad would watch the Guy. Brad would totally watch the Guyver. Um, I'll get somebody to talk about the Guyver with me. Because uh, it is something that is near and dear to my heart. It is one of the very first manga I was ever exposed to when I was a wee lad. I was very young, way too young to be reading something that violent. But hey, I guess with that, that's what uh, older cousins are for. Uh, <laughs> but um, in the nineteen, in the like nineteen ninety five, I think um, they made a OVA series. I think it was, uh, this was like twelve episodes or something. Only the first six are good. Um, you can quote me on that. Uh, the The quality level of that shit dips. It dips hard after episode six, um, but those first six episodes, pretty fucking good. They're pre- pretty all right. Um, the, to date, I don't think they've ever actually done a good Guyver, um like video project. Like, like every they've had like two or three different anime. They've had an OVA movie they have had two live action movies, and not one of them's done it right, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Uh, just the manga. Like, the manga is like the only way to go. Anyway, the, uh, the OVA series was scored by Rejiro Koroku. And uh, holy shit, uh, I should look him up um, because he is a really talented composer. Um, I only know him from the two projects, Godzilla 1985, or 84, excuse me, and Guyver, Um, But the scores for both of those projects... Oh yeah, wait, 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 he did one other Guyver thing. It's it's a funny little thing. It's called the Guyver Image Album, and I did buy this on CD uh, from cdjapan.co.jp back in the day. Um, It's called the Guyver Image Album, and I guess what it's supposed to be is it's a concept album of music that... uh, composers and singers who were familiar with the material thought would fit the vibe like they composed like character themes for I think something at the time didn't exist so I don't even know if the anime had been made yet like if that OVA series even was made but they made this album that had songs and pieces of music inspired by the manga and if you ask me that's such a cool idea um I seem to remember um The girlfriend, I think she told me some singer that she likes uh, did a concept album for um, Stranger Things, I think it was what she said. I don't remember who the singer was, but if you're listening to this, maybe you know music better than I do, especially contemporary music, because I don't know shit about that. Um, But yeah, uh, Reijiro Koroku. uh, His sound is, I'd describe it as like metropolitan orchestral. Like it, it has a very, very contemporary, very, very modern, modern vibe, but it has like a, a a grandness to it that is unique at this point in the Godzilla franchise. In fact, I'd say it's almost unique to the entire Godzilla series. If if I'm being honest, it stands out. Uh, it has it has a a weighty. Very dramatic, very melodramatic, um, but very intense and uh, kind of haunting quality to it. Beautiful music. Not the most propulsive at times, but he has a couple of military marches in there, like the Super X theme, uh, and I'll have to talk about Super X. Uh, the Super X march is fantastic, um, as is some of the JSDF, the Japanese Self Defense Force uh, marches, are also, you know, propulsive and energetic. There's also like a, I would describe it as like a, a countdown track that plays a couple of times in the movie um, that has a, you, you would know it if you heard it. Um, it has some really fun instrumentation. Uh, it feels like solving a crisis or like anticipating a crisis kind of music. And speaking of crisis music, there's a really cool piece of music that plays um, when they're trying to evacuate Tokyo uh, as Godzilla is approaching. Um, and the opening theme is tremendous, uh, especially in the 1985 version. I think they let it go a little bit longer. And in fact, I, I think the opening titles of the 85 version are better, if I'm being honest. Because the, the way it's handled in that is, in the 84 cut, in the original, it's just a uh, volcano footage uh, with credits laid over it. And for some reason they kept the ambient sound of the lava flows playing over the music and it kind of drowns it out just a little bit. And also it's weirdly short. Um, it doesn't run very long. And then we get our title and then the movie starts. Um, whereas the 85 version does this really kind of interesting thing where they, they let the, the theme go long. They have the credits play, but it plays out over black screen. And then these like tears of, of fire like strips basically like imagine you're like tearing a rectangular strip of paper down the middle of a piece of paper or something to reveal fire underneath (laughs) you know like you do um they do that and it basically what it is is the word godzilla um framed in macro so you only get to see like portions of each letter being formed and then as it reaches the end uh the camera like zooms out rapidly, and we get to see Godzilla 1985 in fiery lettering. I think it was really cool. Like, I actually like it better, if I'm being honest. Man, apparently I really like... I told you I was sucking this movie's dick. (laughs) Apparently I really like Godzilla 1985. And it it is important to say this. I did say that Godzilla 1985 is probably far and away the more familiar cut of the film to most non-Japanese viewers, and that might have something to do with forming a bias on my part, um, because I did see that movie when I was young, and I wasn't privy to the original Japanese version. I wasn't privy to a viewing of it until probably the mid-2000s when I bought it on a bootleg DVD. Um, and it would not be until like the Blu-ray era, like 2014, 2015 or something, that it was officially, I think, released in this country via kraken releasing uh, which is a very very small uh publisher but you better believe i bought that disc. um so yeah I, I could be biased much as i imagine a lot of other people are at least from my relative age range and from this country from the u.s um but yeah a tremendous score um and as i said earlier though i, I do feel like the 1985 version of the movie uses the score in slightly more interesting ways I know I'm probably repeating myself but like the the phrase that came to mind was that it's utilized more intentionally um, it's it creates more potent emotional cues um, whereas in the 1984 cut of the film there's a lot of things where those music cues are omitted or are using different music that just it's just like they just laid down an audio track and just kind of haphazardly cut to it. it. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel as intentional, I guess. So in some ways, I feel like the, the way the score is utilized in the 85 cut is just more interesting. <laughs> um, please don't misunderstand. I, am, I do think both versions of the film are very, very good. I would probably rate both of them equally if I'm being honest. This is just me kind of like thinking out loud about all the things that one does differently from the other. Um, And uh, one other thing I guess I should talk about um, is actually here, I'm going to pause for a second just to talk about super X. Um, So the super X attack plane, as they call it in the, in the English dub um, is a really cool thing where it's like in lieu of an enemy monster for Godzilla to fight Somebody on the production probably came to the conclusion that it's like, you know, I don't, I don't think I want, I don't think I want us to get our asses kicked like us as in the Japanese uh, to get our asses kicked the entire movie is like, maybe it'd be kind of nice if we had like something that worked against him. Cause like, we didn't <laughs> in Godzilla 1954 in, in Godzilla nothing fucking worked everything we threw at that guy you know the only thing that hurt that motherfucker was when he dropped a fucking tower or a building on him on himself like that's the one thing that hurt him if you remember that moment in that movie like there's a uh, or maybe i'm thinking of godzilla versus mothra anyway there's a bit in one of those early godzilla movies where like a tower or some shit falls on his tail and he gets pissed about it it's godzilla versus mothra excuse me um but so the super X isn't in, is injected into this film as like a prototype super weapon. Basically that can serve as somewhat of an obstacle for him, like something that can slow him down, something that can make him think about it. You know, it's like, it's something <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a plane with like uh, hover jets underneath it. Um, and it just, it, look it looks kind of jank if I'm being honest, but, but it has a charm to it it helps that when it shows up it has a big old spotlight on the front and it has one of the coolest military marches ever accompanying its arrival so it doesn't matter if it looks like shit it does look like shit it it has cool music backing it so you know much like a, a wrestler you don't like showing up at a show or something. It's like, well, he's got cool music. I'm going to cheer for him. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Super X, this whole thing, it's got, it's got lasers, it's got missiles, it's got Gatlin guns, but more importantly, it has uh, cadmium missiles. Now, I don't know shit uh, about nuclear physics and whatnot, but the way it's phrased in the movie, in both cuts of the movie as well, um, is that cadmium is an element used to quell, like, nuclear overloads or something along those lines. Basically, it can nullify, like, out-of-control nuclear reactions. So the idea is they're going to treat Godzilla, a living being, as a nuclear reactor gone gone out of control. Uh, so the the idea is we're going to use Super X to give, give him a pound and... Uh, So they launch flares to make him roar because he's a big dumb lizard and he looks at the bright shiny lights and they dump some cadmium missiles in his gullet, in his throat. Um, And it actually does successfully put his ass down for a good chunk of the movie, aka the boring part of the movie. (laughs) Um, But as I mentioned, there's an accidental nuclear missile launch that gets uh, intercepted by an American uh, counter-missile. However, there is a i don't know an electromagnetic magnetic pulse of sorts uh, that occurs over tokyo as a result of the like atmosphere like it's above the atmosphere thank god <laughs> no, but nobody dies as a result of the nuclear bomb going off but the radiation the residual radiation does knock out electronics and of course causing causes a electrical like nuclear fucking storm that awakes godzilla and he is mighty pissed and also like recharged and uh yeah, Super X doesn't hang around very long after that. Uh, the little skirmish that the two of them have, Godzilla and the Super X, afterwards, is kind of like the action high point of the movie. Um, so it's a fun little couple minutes of, of, you know, Godzilla blowing shit up and just really tasty explosions. Um, something I haven't talked about is uh, I did mention the effects work in general, with the exception of the couple of things that I said they didn't do so well, um, are pretty remarkable. Um, they spared no expense. I think this was one of the largest cityscapes they ever built for a Godzilla movie. Um, very important to note, um, I didn't say this up top, so I, I'm sorry if this was important and I didn't inform you, dear listener, but um, this represented the beginning of what they call the Heisei era of Godzilla films. Um, which would become its own, its, its own big thing, complete with like continuity uh, between all the films, like v- very tangible continuity between all the films, something that was largely foreign uh, to the Showa era of Godzilla films that preceded it. Um, and during this transition, um, it was decided, and the reason why I'm emphasizing this so much is that we're, things have changed a lot in in the world of like wide spanning like media franchises, like I'm talking about like Star Wars or probably the MCU is the prototypical example these days of something that runs for a fucking long time with a lot of entries to it that you are expected to keep tabs on. Um, this might represent one of the earliest examples that I'm aware of anyway, of a casual reboot of a continuity where, you have things like the, the Halloween franchise and, and the Friday the 13th franchise and things like that where I want to say a little bit further down the line they would do this. But here in 1984, this is maybe the earliest example I can think of of a studio hitting the reset button and expecting the audience to just get it because it's never spelled out to you in the movie. Um, it's never explicitly stated in the movie. I don't know what the marketing for the film was. I wasn't alive in 1984. I wouldn't even come to be for another three years. But, um, yeah, the the way the continuity in this movie works is... And and the entire Heisei series, as I said, is like a single continuous thought in a lot of ways. Um, in the Showa era of movies, it was basically... Anything goes. It doesn't really fucking matter. But here we have a situation where Godzilla nineteen eighty four 1954 is the constant. That movie happened. All of the other Shola-era films did not. So at the beginning of this film, Gojira, from 1984, the 1954 film is the only one in the continuity that has preceded it. So in the hist- in Japanese history, in in the fiction of this film godzilla has appeared and attacked japan exactly one time before and now 30 years later he's showing up again um so to try to get myself back on track there um it is talked about a little bit that he showed up in 54 there are characters who are who are old enough to remember what what that was like and what happened uh, we don't get like too much in the way of like flashbacks or anything about that, but we do get like characters talking about it. Um, and if I remember right, uh, this might be disputed, um, but I just watched this the other day, and I seem to remember uh, one of the characters, the the professor character uh, Hayashida. Uh, he he's important character. He's kind of instrumental in defeating Godzilla in this film. Spoiler alert. Um, I seem to remember him having an offhand line of dialogue in this film where he says Godzilla was defeated uh, at uh, Oto Island. Uh, I think Otojima um, is where Godzilla initially appears um, in 1954, in, in the original film. Um, but he, basically, he doesn't say how. He just says we Godzilla appeared and was defeated. like Like we somehow stopped him. So there's no, I don't think the words Oxygen Destroyer are ever mentioned in, in this film in 1984, um, which, if you're not aware, is the weapon that was used to quote, kill him in 1954. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting connection. Um, but yeah, in the transition, uh, to again try to complete this thought that I started 10 minutes ago, in the transition between the Showa and the Heisei era of films, um, Japan Came a long way. I mean, 1954 was when the series started. That's not that long after the entire country was flattened. Like that's nine years post World War II. Um, and also part of the reason the monster in the movie breathed fire was apparently a lot of the like the majority of buildings in in Japan at the time were constructed of wood, which burns easily. Um, whereas in 1984, 30 years later, Japan is you know in it in the middle of like an economic boom or a bubble or i think it was a bubble at the time um uh they're riding high and tokyo is transformed with some of the largest sky, skyscrapers in the region it, it's a it's a megapolis, if we're being honest um and as such it was decided on some level with the production that's like you know that 50 meter monster just isn't gonna cut it man he's, he's not gonna look like shit next to these buildings like our, these buildings eat 50 meters for lunch man so uh it was decided hey we should make him bigger like like to make him more impressive amongst the cityscape and also like saying that you know saying this a little bit quieter it's like also if we change the scale of the buildings we don't have to add as much detail to them and that'll save a lot of money on time and labor uh, so so i mean that that might be part of why they did it um but yeah they bumped him up to 80 meters so they they bumped him up 30 meters taller basically um but he doesn't he doesn't like look all that much more impressive next to the buildings because the buildings are so massive next to him but that's kind of the charm of the production design of the film is that they do the scale of the skyscrapers in like the shinjuku area justice like like it's a it's a rare sight in a godzilla movie especially you know after 20 years or so or 30 years excuse me uh to see this supposed giant monster like at the ankles basically like walking like his head height is like at the ankles or the shins of these giant skyscrapers in downtown tokyo uh so it's really fascinating it creates a really interesting visual it's very very unique, especially at the time, and also the miniature work is spectacular. Um, there there's a, a shot that is for some fucking reason omitted from the 1985 version of the film. Uh, in in like fan circles, I think you could easily just use the the uh, the phrase like reflection shot, um, and they those people, the people who know these things, would get what I mean. But essentially, what it is is it's a a very large building that Godzilla walks alongside, and because of the reflections of all the windows, all the glass and all the steel, um, Godzilla is, is not technically in the shot, but his reflection is seen alongside the building. Um, it's just a really artful shot. And in fact, a lot of the shots, of a lot of the effect shots in this movie, the dialogue scenes, not so much, but uh, a lot of the Godzilla sequences are shot very artfully. Like, the way the camera is positioned is interesting. Uh, the way the camera moves is interesting. Uh, they use a lot of different lighting schemes, a lot of kind of impressionistic stuff with, like, using the, the red light of, like, flames and such to, and, uh, alongside, like, some really powerful music cues to, like, God, make Godzilla seem fucking devilish and evil as fuck. Like, this Godzilla is mean. Um, and, yeah, a lot of the city destruction scenes are very, very cool. Like uh, there is a noteworthy example of um, uh, stock footage utilized during Godzilla's attack sequence on the city. Um, it's footage of a, a freeway blowing up, essentially. Uh, from I think the film is called Prophecies of Nostradamus. Uh, it's another Toho production, and the use of stock footage in Godzilla films is very, very, very common um, across like its entire existence, essentially. Uh, but it is curious that there's a couple of shots during his initial rampage where it's like, "Huh, that's uh that that footage looks old," and it's because it is. It's like from ten years before this movie came out. Um, but yeah, uh, there is a what was I going to say? Um, so, um, th- there's a a really cool sequence when he first arrives um, at Tokyo Bay. Um, it's, it's like a cool trailer shot essentially, although putting it in the trailer would probably be a huge spoiler where we get, um, Godzilla being attacked by jets, um, something that was used to like ward him off, um, during his initial attack in the 1954 film. Um, and the way the pyrotechnics are handled there is really, really cool. We get to see Godzilla like, bust out his breath weapon. Um, but this sequence is, is kind of an example of like the difference in like the overall like approach to the edit of the soundscape of the films of the 1984 and 85 cuts of the films. Cause in the 84 version, we have these actors wearing like helmets and, and oxygen masks, like people in the cockpits of these jets. So we get all these shots devoted to them, like putting down their visors and grabbing hold of their flight sticks and, you know, going off to fight Godzilla and stuff. And, their facial expressions are very very animated <laughs> like there's a lot of eyebrow action going on and you can tell that they're saying things but for some reason they didn't record any dialogue for them so it's like why are you showing me all these people's faces if they're not going to be saying anything or being like being allowed to emote to the full extent that they can't whereas in the American cut of the film they have all these stupid fucking things that they're saying like I think one of them literally says sayonara sucker it's like, oh man, <laughs> like, oh, this is definitely cut by a white guy, <laughs> somebody in the ADR booth. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, that was embarrassing. But um, just those offhand bits of dialogue, that just that extra layer of energy and noise, to me anyway, is kind of welcome. Because I mean, the music that plays over the sequence is powerful and is great. But seeing, just seeing all that eyebrow acting that's going on, it it makes me, it leaves me hungry for, like, a Sayonara sucker or something. Not exactly that, but just some kind of dialogue, like, people screaming or saying, look at the size of that, like, these missiles will go through Godzilla like shit through a goose or some stupid shit like that, or Eagle One, Fox Three, if we're talking Independence Day terms or something like that. Um... And on top of that, like it's a different scene, but I may as well use this continuing the thought. Um, when Godzilla is first seen in the film, uh, he attacks a nuclear power plant. Um, and there is a bit where he first arrives at the nuclear power plant, and uh, his footsteps... I don't know how the, he snuck up on somebody, but he did. <laughs> Stealth Godzilla. He just snuck up on this poor security guard. But yeah, Godzilla... His footsteps cause the ground to to splinter and crack underneath the security guard's feet. Uh, he falls on his ass and he looks up the entire length of Godzilla. He gets some Godzilla package as he's looking all the way up the length and the height of him. Um, then we get to see his his big old Kermit the Frog fucking face and uh, the way that this the way that the sound editing is done here. Nineteen eighty four cut that guy like kind of quivers in terror and then we cut to a shot of godzilla from below from cock first essentially um of just godzilla walking over the camera and that's it like the mute there's music playing and we hear stomping because godzilla's approaching and then he walks over the camera it goes all black and then we cut to a wide shot of godzilla in the 85 cut again it's blunt it's stupid it it's it's manipulative. It's emotionally manipulative. But I kind of like it. Um The the security guard falls on his ass. He, he looks up. He does the whole bit. He's entranced by Godzilla's magic cock. And then as Godzilla is walking over the camera, they treat that shot as a POV shot. So the guy doesn't just sit there in silence. Like We get to hear him go like, oh, oh, ah! and it's like it confirms very concretely that's a pov and when it goes black it's because that pov got squashed and i kind of need that (laughs) and also it helps that that vocal performance is not half bad like that guy does sound fucking scared and it's just like one of those really small things it's like you know i i like that i like that being there it's like yeah that guy's dead because the way it's the way it's shut and it's just so silent in the a nineteen eighty four eighty four cut of the movie, it's like I don't know what that's supposed to be. Maybe the cinematographer just wanted to look up at the the big lizard's package or something. Like it's totally silent, so I don't know if the guy's still there or something. And they kinda like do that again later in the movie where there's a <laughs> there's a, a happy hobo uh, who's taking advantage of all the uh all the catastrophe happening in Tokyo and he's like looting places. He's basically just running around, getting boozed and enjoying the chaos and stuff. It's, it's like implied that he gets stepped on in the 85 version of the movie, but in the 84 version, it seems pretty concretely the opposite where he's, he's left alone. It's a weird thing, but the, the performances of that character are very different between the dub and the 84 version, but I won't get into that. But, um, should point out that the uh, the nuclear reactor attack sequence um, begins a new trend um, in in the in this portrayal of the character of Godzilla kind of from here on out is that he it's concretely spelled out that he feeds on nuclear energy. Uh, he is attacking the nuclear power plant and other parts of Japan because he needs nuclear energy and in fact he attacked the Russian nuclear sub for its reactor. <laughs> um that's a new thing in in the Godzilla mythos that gets introduced here um but yeah the the Tokyo Bay attack sequence I did say it was a trailer worthy um what I'm referring to there is when he uh, unleashes his his death breath uh in this like sweeping arc across the entirety of like the landing area of tokyo bay and uh yeah uh, basically the entirety of the crown defense force gets blown up in exactly one shot uh for 1984 it's pretty spectacular um they've since topped it a thousand times over with things like shin gojira where he you know when his breath weapon comes out for the first time in that movie it's an event uh, i'll tell you that much um but yeah uh, i should say that the the Godzilla design, the suit in this movie, is divisive, um, including like myself included. Like I don't know how I feel about it. Like my opinion changes literally from shot to shot because it looks radically different from shot to shot. Not because it's a different suit, but because the difference of a little bit of angles and a little bit of lighting make huge difference. Uh, so the basic design of it is that it's kind of a scaled back and not in terms of like bulk or anything mind you it's it's massive but it's kind of refined i guess it's like it's like classic godzilla in its silhouette although beefier especially in the legs because godzilla's always got to have them thighs um but like his spines are kind of subdued as compared to say like the like the megalon era of the character like they're they're not as they don't protrude as far from his back as they have uh, in other portrayals up to this point. Um, He retains, or he reacquires um, some design elements that were discarded uh, over the years um, in the form of, uh, he has pointed ears um, that go backwards and um, fangs, um, both elements that were present in the 1954 original design that were discarded at some point, but came back here. And I like those, I like that a lot. Uh, the fangs and the ears. Um, but the big thing that like the deal breaker, I think for most people is the eyes. And I did use the phrase Kermit the Frog earlier, <laughs> um, because like the true Kermit the Frog Godzilla is the Megalon era of the character, like 1973 to 1975, mostly 73 and 74. He, he looks like a he looks like Kermit. Or he looks like Oscar the Grouch or some shit, uh, especially in 1973 because his coloring was more green. Um, but here he also has big giant eyes with a lot of white. Um, and depending on what angle you're shooting him from, sometimes he looks like he's, I don't know, like hes he's got some mental issues or something. <laughs> like, like he's kind of, he's either like really stoned or he's checked out or something. There are certain times when the suit feels more alive than others. And very curiously, the suit is shown to be capable of blinking about three or four times in the movie. But for some reason, this is a thing that is not seen very often in Godzilla movies. Uh, It confuses me because it's such a. It's one of those small details that brings so much life to an inanimate object. Um, but yeah, he only blanks like two or three times in the movies, but you notice it every time it does largely because his eyes are so fucking big. Um, but yeah, sometimes it looks fantastic, sometimes questionable. Um, and also this was, I think the first Godzilla movie to make use of something they called a cybot. <laughs> that basically it was a giant animatronic. Uh, I did mention that seems to be a little bit of a connection to the Dino De Laurentiis, uh, King Kong. They also attempted to do something like that, although on, on a smaller scale or a larger scale in the form of King Kong. But here it was like, I think they said it was 18 feet tall, but something about its, a, it's movements from the neck down weren't great. So virtually every time you see it in the film, it's largely just facial close-ups where it looks great. Um, and most notably, you get, like, a bust-up shot of it um, after it's been hit with the Cadmium missiles, and he's, like, drooling and looking kind of fucked up. Um, that looks great, especially because it has a inflatable chest, so you actually get to he- see him, like, taking breath, and, like, you get to hear his heartbeat and stuff. It, it's, it's a good prop. It's well-designed. Caveat, it doesn't look a damn thing like the actual suit. So there's... It's very obvious that you're looking at two different props. Whenever we cut to like f- extreme facial close-ups that make u- extensive use of facial expression, it's clearly a different sculpt, a different prop. Um, which to me is a little bit distracting, but it does look fucking great, and it is very well articulated. So it's it's probably it's probably worth it uh, to the production. Very important to note: uh, Ken Pachiro Satsuma. Uh, portrays Godzilla in this film apparently he was a late replacement and as a result uh, the suit was sculpted for someone much larger than him uh Satsuma the story behind him as far as I know is he was like a perennial portrayal uh portrayer of uh, Godzilla villains like he played like I think Gigan and uh some of the other enemy monsters in the Showa era um Scruffy little guy. I've seen him in interviews. He, uh, <laughs> uh, his philosophy in portraying Godzilla was bring the hate. Like he he was cussing up a storm in that suit. Like he was always pissed off, um, and apparently freakishly strong because he's a very small guy, and this suit was reportedly like 240 pounds or something. Uh, supposed to have been like at the time, especially maybe still. Um, one of if not the most like heavy Godzilla suits ever built Um, and sadly it was stolen Uh, our luggage was stolen Uh, that's it's a really good uh, Bill Murray line from uh, Ed Wood if you haven't seen it our luggage was stolen (laughs) for some reason I love that Um, but yeah the suit was actually stolen from the Toho backlot like right after they finished filming which really fucking sucks because they have museums for this shit. Like, Godzilla suits are not built to last. They are made of rubber and whatnot, and they do decompose quite rapidly, and, like, really ugly. Uh, they get ugly. They get brown, and they just melt to shit. Like, I've seen some Godzilla suits that all that's left of them, like, all that's left of them is the top half of the head, and it's just it looks like a pile of shit with eyeballs. Like, it's terrible. <laughs> but, hey, it's, it's, it's Japanese philosophy. Everything is... Transient, you know, uh, it's it's like poetry, right? Um, but yeah, uh, the suit was stolen, so it cannot be displayed anywhere, which really sucks. I hope whoever stole that two hundred and fifty pound hunk of rubber enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that was incredible that uh, he was a late minute replacement, and it was not sculpted for his physique. Jesus Christ! Um, so I'm about done here. I'll I'll just say that the uh, the ending of the movie um just to being as i'm spoiling things left and right i'll just say there is some bullshit that they add to this movie that thankfully they don't really carry over to other movies it's a way to end the movie i'm not super keen on retaining it as a part of like godzilla's uh, i don't know the the way he functions but basically they discover that godzilla has some form of bird anatomy um that makes him responsive to birdsong Such that he will follow certain like noise made at a certain frequency that mirrors that of that mimics that of Burt's song. Uh, So they construct a giant audio transmitter, like a giant sonic emitter, on the other side of a volcano, um, and they turn the thing on. It works. They spend most of the movie working out the kinks of getting like the frequency down right. I don't know why it took so long, if I'm being honest. It's like, yeah, I mean, you wanted to see the city get blown up, right? But yeah, the Super X is destroyed. Some of our human characters have to, like, run away from Godzilla. Like, they're, like, literally at his feet as he's about to step on them. And then they turn the thing on. He hears the sound, and he just does what a big dumb lizard would do. And he just drops everything. Like, and just turn, literally does an about-face and walks back into the ocean. <laughs> um and swims his ass down south, um, and uh, I think the island is uh, Oshima, and the uh, m- mountain is Mount Mihara, um, and yeah, he goes out to the volcano, and uh, it is active, and uh, he stands at the base of it, and they set off some explosives uh, that toss him into the volcano, uh, not to be seen again for another five years. Um, in a much better film (laughs) we'll get to that someday maybe but but yeah the the ending of the movie uh, has a gorgeous piece of music that plays over it Uh, it's this this really haunting uh, orchestral melody that plays um and we're cutting frequently back and forth between godzilla like burning in the volcano and like the japanese pm as i said keiju kobayashi mvp in the movie we get a sustained facial close-up of him crying masculine tears of manliness it's powerful and it makes you feel things and in the american version we get the same shots the same deal um but we also cut to raymond burr and his narration comes in the form of a pretty heartfelt and largely effective speech um, I don't know if I would include it in in my ideal cut of the movie, but it is good. Like It's not embarrassing, if you ask me. Um, but yeah, the music is really powerful. Uh, definitely give it a listen if you haven't heard it before, uh, or even if you don't want to see the movie, I, I would highly recommend some of the pieces of music in this film. Um, and then for some reason, we end with a, a Japanese city pop track, <laughs> which I'm sure the kids would love today in 2023 which is a weird trend that we're kind of in the midst of right now city pop is big these days with the kids i couldn't tell you how or why but it it is what it is um but yeah uh the the end of the movie is is very powerful i thought and uh in addition to the 1985 cut i'm sorry for repeating myself so much i was trying to find my thought um an addition made to the ending of the 1985 cut is not just Raymond Burr's uh speech um there is also an additional roar from Godzilla um that is pitched up in such a way that it is like for lack of a better term like emotionally penetrating like i had, i had a friend uh who grew up in a uh, like a, a pet friendly household like they had a family dog his entire life um, and I remember him having like a really, really visceral emotional reaction, uh, to the end of this movie. I remember we were little kids, but you know, that's, that's when you should be watching Godzilla movies. If you ask me like, hell, if I have kids, they're going to be watching Godzilla. Like when they're like three or some shit, <laughs> oh, he's, he's my hero. He's going to be your hero too. Damn it. Damn it. Billy. Uh, no, I would never name my kid, Billy. Sorry. Any listeners named Billy? Um, But yeah, uh, it's only present in the American cut of the film. But it's this like piercing shriek that Godzilla makes as they have the like slow motion shot of him falling into the volcano, and I, I like it um, because it is effective. Like it makes you feel things. Like it's bad. Like it. it, The the scene is cut in such a way that, and also the music accompanying it, it. It plays out as a tragedy like you're meant to feel bad for what's happening where it's like he's yes, he caused all sorts of destruction, he killed tons of people twice um in Tokyo anyway. But he's ultimately a big dumb animal. Um he doesn't even know why he's here or what he's doing right now. Um so you're you're it's meant to be a tragedy. You're meant to feel bad that that we're doing this to him. Um and if you're going to go that route, why not make it the most effective it can be? So if you ask me, again, it's it's blunt, it's it's manipulative, but that, that shriek is something that I would include in my ideal cut of the film. But again, it's not present in the 84 cut. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't say everything there is to say, but I did say a whole fucking lot. So I think it's about time to, to cut it off here. Uh, time for me to go be social maybe or something uh anyway uh so this was me not reviewing but just kind of talking about uh gojira from 1984 slash godzilla 1985 uh directed by koji hashimoto uh, for the japanese version and rj kaiser uh for the american version obviously um anyway uh this has been our latest installment of no time november um, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other catching up on cinema content, you can do so by navigating to our lovely website of catching You can also find us on the socials in the form of the Instagram at catching up on cinema, as well as the Twitter at catching cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. And the podcast is available on pretty much every platform you can imagine, including bitcade. So fucking Google it. And that being said, thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.